Reformation and the remnant. Let's bow our heads as we start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless us and speak to us and be with us here in this place at this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned on Sunday night, the big three questions we have in life is where do I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And those are the questions that challenge us at various times in our lives. Sometimes we're not really bothered about one of the questions, but it may be another one that's really bothering us. It may be when you're coming up to the end of, of high school or college or university, and you really want to know where you're going with your life in the immediate next two, three, or four years future. Where do we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? You know, if you just look at your family, there on the screen is my mother, my father, Aiko's mother and father, and her 101-year-old grandmother on the far right-hand side, who's strong in health, living on her own, in her right mind, and makes her own breakfast every day. Now, it's important for us to know maybe where our family personal family, where we come from. When we look at our ancestors, our parents, our grandparents, and, and sometimes when we ask questions about our parents and about our grandparents or our great-grandparents, and we find out who those people are, it can explain sometimes who we are today. Sometimes certain traits of character we can understand when we know that our grandmother or father was like that. And that's an interesting study to do. I haven't gone back too far in, in, in my generations. But it's interesting to know where you come from. It was Edmund Burke who said, those that don't know their history are doomed to what? To repeat it. And unfortunately, in this world, we have seen history repeat itself on numerous occasions. And it's often the negative side of history that gets repeated. When we were filming for Lineage, this is one story that does stand out, not for the good part. Maybe I've, I've shared this story with you. We were in Cambridge at the Wesley House, myself and Clive, and we were going to film in the building just next door to it, which is Jesus College, part of Cambridge University. And on our way there, we stopped and saw this building there. It says Wesley House there on, 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 on the thing. So we walked into, into that doorway, and a lady came out and talked to us, and, and she said, you know, what are you doing? We told her we were just looking around, and, and then she proceeded to tell us that this was Wesley House, and, and she went da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and then I heard the word American and America, da-da-da-da-da. Whoa, 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 what did you say? This lady working for the institution named after him was telling us, that he was from America, and he was an American. We very carefully made a slow exit, and then as we got to about the peak point where I took the photo, we both, we both burst out laughing. We didn't have the heart to let this lady know, as she told us so confidently. That's kind of like going for a tour at the Ellen White Estate at the General Conference headquarters. And someone who works for the Ellen White estate then tells you, oh, Ellen White, yeah, yeah, she, she comes from Hungary and she was Hungarian. Huh?
they say history is linked to identity. And if you don't know your history or your family, then they question, who are you? When we look at the Reformation and we see where God led his people over the years, this is a photo taken inside John, Wesley, John Wycliffe's church, sorry, John Wycliffe's church in Lutterworth, England. And there you can go there today. If you're driving, ever driving down the M1 motorway on your way to London or, or somewhere else in the south, you get to junction, I believe it's junction 20. If you take junction 20, it's no more than half a mile from the junction. You will run, if you know where you're going, to John, Wesley, John Wycliffe's church. You can't miss it. It's on the hill. You just literally drive towards what you can see. And there you've got John Wycliffe's church. He was the first person who translated the Bible into the language of the common people. Translated the Bible into the English language. And there his church stands today. He, he, he translated the Bible. And you can see a copy in the old English as to what the Bible looks like. These men are some of our spiritual heritage. Ellen White writes a whole chapter in the book Great Controversy about John Wycliffe, and she says he was one of the foremost of all the reformers in breadth of intellect, in firmness of conviction, etc. She says he was one of the best reformers that ever was. Coming after John Wycliffe, you had this man here. Uh, you can go to Prague today, that's the Old Town Square, and there, looking down over the Old Town Square, is a statue of John Huss, or as they say in Czech Republic, Jan Hus. He also had gotten a copy of John Wycliffe's writings, and he was starting to, to preach the Bible in the language of the common people there in the Czech Republic. And slowly the darkness was being peeled back. Then, a hundred years later, Martin Luther was on this very staircase. It's one of the most authentic places in Rome. If you go to Rome and get a, you get a tour guide, they tell you a bunch, they tell you lots of stories. That you question the, uh, the, the historical authenticity of much of the stories. But if you go to this place, you know for sure that on one of those steps, Martin Luther was on his knees and then he stood up when he heard the verse in his mind, the just shall live by faith. Like on those staircase, that staircase, he had an epiphany of understanding about the gospel and got up and walked away. You can go to Wittenberg, Germany, and there is the door. It's not the literal door because the door has been removed. It was a wooden door and it's been replaced with a metal door. But it was on these, this door here where he nailed, or probably he used some candle wax, which doesn't sound as remarkable as nailing a 95 Thesis to the door. But either way, he posted his 95 Thesis to this door in 1517 on the 31st of October. The 500th anniversary was last year. These men, these people who went before us, they left a legacy. If you go to Westminster today, you've got Westminster Abbey on one side, and then just across the grass, you've got the Central Methodist Hall, which stands as a legacy of John Wesley's work here in England and America and in other parts of the world. This here is the Reformation Monument in Worms, remembering the Reformers like Martin Luther and some of the other ones. This is Constance, Germany, remembering the spot where John Huss was burned at the stake.
that stone there on the right is the very spot where he was burned. And after he was burned, they dug up his ashes. And just to make sure they got all his ashes, they dug the mud up under the ashes as well. And then they walked to the nearby River Rhine and dumped his ashes in the River Rhine. When you read these stories, you realize that men and women stood for something in an era when it was not popular, it wasn't normal, it wasn't the thing to do. There's statues of various of these characters dotted around Europe. And statues are built to honor the courageous stand that they made. There's a statue of John Wesley on the left, William Tyndale on the right. It's right outside the Ministry of Defense overlooking the River Thames in London, right there. There's a statue of John Knox up in Scotland. And the one there on the right that you can't quite know what that is at the top right, that's a cross on the ground in Oxford that marks the spot that Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer were burned at the stake on that very spot. You know why they were burned at the stake? You know, as Adventists, what do we understand will be the end-time issue, or one of the end-time issues that we may have to Make a stand on. Sabbath. Right? If you've done a Bible study on the mark of the beast, or you understand a little bit about that, we understand that the Sabbath is, is more than just a day of rest, but one day, and even today, it is also a test of your faith and trust and relationship in God. You know why these men were burned back then? At least the Oxford martyrs. What was the issue that they were burned over? It was the issue that we sometimes take for granted today. We sometimes skip church over it just because we don't like getting our feet wet. The issue that they were burned for was communion. The question was, is the bread the body of Christ? Yes or no? What's the answer to the question? The answer to the question is no. It's not the body of Christ. But the belief was that the bread is the literal body of Christ. That when the priest prays over it, it converts miraculously into the literal flesh of Jesus. And the wine turns to the literal blood of Jesus. And if you deny that, we'll kill you. That was a life and death issue. There was a different variants of that. The Lutherans came up with kind of a hybrid version. And then Calvin came up with another version. Zwingli was the one who came up with what was called memorialism, which is basically the Adventist view we hold today, that it's simply a symbol of what Jesus did and nothing more. It's interesting to know what was a life and death issue back then and what's a life and death issue today. You see, the spiritual lineage that we come from is 2,000 years since New Testament times. If you think about it, Christianity went from being a Middle Eastern slash African religion. It then went to being a predominantly European religion. It then went 
to being worldwide. Christianity went from being a persecuted religion when it was illegal. It then went to being a popular religion. It then went to being institutional. And you could argue today in secular Western Europe and America and so on, that it's just an indifferent society now. Christian, yeah, no, who cares? There's been certain turning points in history. The translation of the Bible, John Wycliffe, was a turning point. The translation of the Bible by William Tyndale was a turning point. The protest of the princes in Martin Luther's day, when they stood up for the liberty of conscience and for the separation of the civil power and the religious power, that was another turning point. The breakaway of the Protestant groups, so to speak, was another turning point of history where you went from having just one church, just one Christian church that was Catholic. Now people broke away and said, no, we're going to be Lutheran. No, we're going to be Presbyterian. We're going to be Anglican. We're going to be Methodist. And Christianity started to get fragmented. Lutheranism, Calvinism, Anglicanism. Methodism, and then the rise of America as a nation in general has been a significant turning point in history, and as Adventists, we understand a significant turning point in our history. For our church was founded in the United States of America, and then from there spread all the way around the world. When you think of all these different churches, the Church of England that was started by Henry VIII, Kind of an interesting history, the Church of England. The Methodist Church in the 1780s, the Lutheran Church in the 1500s with Luther, the Presbyterian Church, who started that one? John Knox. John Knox. Church of Scotland, Presbyterian which really comes from the Calvinist roots. Baptist Church, Church of God. These were different movements that started and still continue to this day. And each one of them started and they rediscovered or they, they discovered something about the Bible that other people hadn't heard or seen for several hundred years. These are some of the beliefs that were discovered in the Reformation. That, that, essentially, if you summarize the Reformation, it's a discovery of two things. Number one, they discovered who Jesus Christ was. Number two, they discovered who the Antichrist was. They discovered they were in the Antichrist, and they discovered who Jesus Christ was, meaning they discovered righteousness by faith, they discovered justification, forgiveness, repentance, etc. They discovered all these things about Jesus Christ, that they're saved by grace through faith. That communion is symbolic, not literal. That God's word is inspired and should be freely accessible. That God's word is understandable to all. Baptism by immersion, the priesthood of all believers, the link between faith and works and Christian living. These are just some of the beliefs that were rediscovered in the process of the Reformation. Because the word Reformation literally means to do what? To reform. Then after this, you have the Adventist Church, founded in 1863, officially. That's the official incorporation of the church, was 1863. Though, 
Adventism kind of predates that time. It's hard to, you know, yes, that was the official incorporation, but it was really just because they need to incorporate the Review and Herald that they actually did it on that day and that year. They were already meeting before that with Adventist beliefs, even having conference sessions and whatnot before that. And the formation of our church was kind of in process. What is the uniqueness of Adventism? What makes Adventists unique in our identity? Is it our belief on the second coming? Increasingly it is. (laughs) With all this secret rapture stuff going around. But I wouldn't argue that that is our hallmark uniqueness. Though it is in our name, Seventh Day what? Adventist, it is very unique, and even our understanding of how the second coming happens, that the resurrection happens at the second coming, that's unique for the most part. Is it our belief in the state of the dead? Is that unique to us? Not 100%, because the, the, the Jehovah's Witness hold a similar view that we hold on the state of the dead. Is the Sabbath unique to us, yes or no? No, it's not. In the strictest sense, it's not, but I will argue later on that it is. In the strictest sense, it's not because you have Jews that keep the Sabbath, you have Seventh-day Baptists and other churches that do keep the Sabbath, but I would argue that our understanding of the Sabbath is different to everyone else. Heavenly Sanctuary, is that unique to us? Largely... Largely, tithing, is that unique? That's not unique. Is it good? You're not quite sure. (laughs) It's a tight month. Health message, is that unique? For the most part, yeah. I mean, other people do live healthy lives, but I would say, argue they live it for different reasons. The connection between the spirit, body, mind, etc., as we understand, the reasons for it, in some ways, are unique. Spirit of prophecy, is that unique? No, not really. I mean, Ellen White is unique, but the belief in prophecy and the gift of prophecy, is that unique? No, that's not unique. What makes us unique? Do we even have to be unique? Amen, we should. Let's not be ashamed of that. Who's this guy? William Miller. What do you know about William Miller? Was he a good man? Did William Miller keep the Sabbath? Will William Miller be in heaven? There, figure that one out for yourself. That will twist your mind up a little bit. William Miller, you go to his house today. We went there earlier last year, late last year. The birthplace of Adventism in America. And it's quite fascinating to go to his house. And this is his room. It's his bedroom. And there in his bedroom, you can see his Bible and his concordance. 
And there you can have a look and see where he studied through his Bible systematically from Genesis all the way through until he got to Daniel chapter 8, 14 and couldn't quite understand what that verse meant. He stayed there, studied it, and came to an understanding. It wasn't a complete understanding. It was partial, but he still came to a, a deeper understanding than he had started with. He discovered what that Bible verse meant around the year 1816. Why is that significant? He studied it over and over for two years. If I get my dates right, till 1818. Settled on his view that Jesus was going to come in approximately 25 years. And then did nothing about it. Told his wife. Told his kids. And that's what he did with it. Later on, a few years later, he did write a few articles in a local newspaper. Almost to ease his conscience. But he kept hearing this voice that said, go preach, go preach. He said, no, I'm a farmer. Go preach, no, I'm a farmer. Go preach, no, I'm a farmer. And then you probably know the story. Eventually, one day, his nephew knocked on the door and said, Uncle William, can you come and preach, please? He stormed out the door and he went to this grove of trees where there's a sign that says he went in a farmer and came out a preacher. Because five minutes before the nephew knocks on the door, he said to God, if I get an invitation to preach, I'll preach. Now we knew that was safe because for the last 15 years, he'd never been invited to preach. So it was kind of a safe fleece to put out to God. Kind of like you're saying, well, Lord, you know, if you want me to go as a missionary, then have the mayor of Manchester come and tell me that. You're giving God an impossible fleece, almost, that you know is never going to happen. I mean, it's not quite the same, but he never had a preaching appointment for the last 15 years. He thought it was safe. He kept his vow, and he started preaching. He started preaching the soon return of Jesus, and there were many other people that started to preach the soon return of Jesus as a chapel on his property. And so by the year 1843 and 1844, there were some historians estimate 250,000 Adventists waiting for Jesus' return in the northeastern part of America alone. William Miller himself is accredited with converting 40,000 Baptists and 45,000 Methodists. 85,000. Now, if there's an Adventist evangelist today and they baptize more than 1,000, they're considered pretty good. If they get to the 10,000 mark, they are like once-in-a-generation evangelist. William Miller, 85,000 just in the Baptist church and the Methodist church, because there was no Adventist church then. The revival was multi-denominational. They waited for Jesus to return, and Jesus did not return. Then what happens? How, what, what happens in the history of Adventism? Well, there was a great disappointment. Can you imagine what it was like waiting for Jesus to return and Jesus doesn't come? Adventism was born out of disappointment. And why was it born out of disappointment? It's almost like God wanted to kind of, what would the word be? Filter, shake the church. There's 250,000 people waiting for Jesus to return, but how many are really that serious? Okay, there's a disappointment. Now what happens? Well, what happened over the next six months is something that is quite interesting. The movement filtered down 
through the course of a bunch of a bunch of theological splits within the church. Firstly, there was this distinction between mainline Protestant, the mainline Adventist, and bridegroom Adventist. Mainline Adventists were people like Joshua V. Himes and William Miller. Those were the two compadres. Bridegroom Adventists were Ellen White and Joseph Bates. And historians say it's roughly 75% and 25%. Would you ask, what's a mainline Adventist? This is the mainline Adventist. They abandoned the belief that October the 22nd, 1844, was a prophetic date, and they looked for new dates. William Miller was in that camp. Initially, he was bridegroom. Then Joshua V. Himes pulled him back. Said, no, no, no. Set a new date. So they went for the March of 1845 and then October 1845. It fizzled over time. They became the Advent Christian Church, of which there are 25,000 members today. And a split of the Advent Christian Church is the Jehovah's Witness. If you go to New England today, we went to the town that Rachel Preston Oaks is from. And there in her town, there's a really nice Advent Christian church. There's still a few of them. They're around. There's not many. There's only 25,000, but they're around. What's a bridegroom Adventist? Well, they maintain that October the 22nd was a prophetic date. They couldn't understand why Jesus hadn't come, but they said that date is fixed. It's sure. 25%. Then what happens? So if you summarize it, mainline Adventists said, we got the wrong date, but the right event. Bridegroom Adventists said, no, 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 we got the right date, but the wrong event. Now, this is happening within the church. When I say church, I'm talking to the very loose walls of the church. And there's a shaking going on. This is like in the five months after October 22nd. Then what happens? There was another split. You had the spiritualizers, which were 90% of the 25%. And then you had the literalists. And you can probably work out, based on the description, what those people believed. The spiritualizers abandoned by the end of 1845. These are the people. And this is all happening around March 1845. Joseph Bates and the Whites were literalists. What do they believe, literalists? Well, the spiritualizers believed that Jesus had come in 1844, but it was a spiritual return. Bit of a woolly, airy-fairy belief. It's not very easy to hold on to such a belief for too long, and so they'd fizzled by about six months later. The literalists still believed in a literal interpretation of the events they preached about. But there was to be another split. You know, <laughs> splitting, splitting is part of our heritage. And no one said amen. You have the one-day view, and you had extended view. The one-day view believed that October 22nd was a literal day. They believe in a literal interpretation of that day. But the one-day view said that on October the 22nd, Jesus began the judgment and he finished it within 24 hours. One-day view. The extended view said no. Jesus started the investigative judgment on October the 22nd and that extended through time and will extend through time until just prior to his return, which is what we believe today. Amen. So, on October the 22nd, 1844, the Adventists who were gathered on Ascension Rock and other parts of New England, they had a partial understanding of the prophecy. In the next one to two years, the believers would study the Bible together, and through a series of kind of uh, study and splits, 
God would refine and shake down his people. Because all of those 200,000, there had to be some kind of refining process. It's interesting to note that all of our pioneers come from that strand there. All of them. Who later became Seventh-day Adventists. I think it's interesting, the humble origins that we have in our past. Amen? The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in two and through throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is what? Perfect towards him. God never looked for the biggest or the best. You've got this small group of believers in northern New England. They don't have ordained pastors. They don't have educated ministers with doctorates or PhDs or whatever. You've got farmers. You've got, you've got sea captains studying their Bibles and coming to conclusions and just sharing it with other people. What is the uniqueness of Adventism? Is it the sanctuary? Partially. But let me share with you a little background on the Sabbath. There's a guy called T.M. Preble. T.M. Preble wrote a tract. Notice what the name of the tract is. Tract showing that the seventh day should be observed as a Sabbath instead of the first commandment, according to the commandment by T.M. Preble. His tract was sent to a man called Joseph Bates. Joseph Bates said, aha, that's true, I will keep the Sabbath. His tract also went to J.N. Andrews, and J.N. Andrews was 15 years old at the time. It's a fascinating story. We covered that in one of our lineage episodes. The tract went to the home of Stowell, the Stowell home. Stowell picked up the tract and said, eh, put it down. His 15-year-old daughter, Marion, picked up the tract, read it, and said, I will keep the Sabbath. To me, that's fascinating. The parent rejected it, and the teenager accepted it. She then shared it with her 17-year-old brother, and he said, hmm, I will keep the Sabbath too. They then said, John Andrews, John Nevin Andrews, he lives just up the road. Let's share it with him. He's very intelligent. They shared it with Jay and Andrews. He was 15 years old, 14, 17, 15. He read the tract and said, hmm, yeah, that's right. Let's all keep the Sabbath. It's a fascinating account of where the youth were leading. Later on, the parents then said, okay, we'll all keep. And all the parents joined and all kept the Sabbath too. And a powerful, and that's where the Review and Herald magazine started in Paris Hill, Maine. The Review and Herald magazine probably wouldn't have started in Paris Hill, Maine if that 14-year-old daughter didn't read that track and be convicted that that was the Sabbath. You can go to this church here. It's in Washington, New Hampshire. It's the birthplace of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, Joseph Bates, he got the tract, and he heard of some Sabbath keepers called Cyrus Farnsworth and Frederick Wheeler, and he went to their house, and together they studied the Bible, and then they formed a Sabbath pact where they all said, you keep the Sabbath? Yeah. You keep the Sabbath? Yeah. I keep the Sabbath? We'll all keep the Sabbath. Let's do it. And they formed a pact. And it was after studying the Sabbath with those two men, you heard the story when Joseph Bates went home and was walking over the bridge... That was the next day. And someone said, what's the news, Captain Bates? And he said, ah, the news is the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. It was after he studied the Bible with these guys. Ellen White read about the Sabbath from Joseph Bates. Don't miss that. Ellen White read about the Sabbath from who? So why didn't God give Ellen White a vision? 
she was getting visions at this point. Ellen White was receiving visions from 1844. So now we're now talking about 1848. Why didn't God just be like, there you are, Ellen, there's your vision. Why did Ellen White have to study a Joseph Bates tract to keep the Sabbath? I thought prof prophets had like a little extra privilege. Don't they? Don't prophets have like extra knowledge from God? So why did Ellen White have to study a track that Joseph Bates wrote and printed to keep the Sabbath? She didn't accept the Sabbath until she read that track. And God didn't tell her about the Sabbath until she read that track. Why? It's a key point. It's a key point in our heritage as Adventists, the answer to this question. Very key point. Because you as a Seventh-day Adventist will get accused by some of your friends at work and friends you have who go to other churches that don't worship on the Sabbath day. They will accuse you openly and say, you just believe what that prophet tells you. You heard that? So why is it, and this is a key point, don't miss it. Why is it that Ellen White kept the Sabbath because she read a tract and studied her Bible by Joseph Bates? Why didn't God give her a vision? Question, did Ellen White get a vision on the Sabbath? Yes, she did. She got the Sabbath halo vision, where she saw the Ten Commandments and a halo around number four. But the key point is she got that vision after she had studied it in the Bible and already made a decision to keep it. This was the house. You can drive by it today. It's owned by somebody. It was under a tree in that front garden where Joseph Bates studied the Sabbath. Now, Joseph Bates wrote this track called The Seventh-day Sabbath, A Perpetual Sign. And he was the first person. You ask what is the uniqueness of Adventism? Joseph Bates was the first person, not Ellen White. Who? Was the first person who connected the two doctrines of the Sabbath and the sanctuary. You ask what's the uniqueness of Adventism. We don't have time to go to these texts. One of them talks about, I saw the temple of God opened in heaven. The temple of God is open, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments are there. Joseph Bates saw the sanctuary. He saw the holy place, the most holy place. He saw inside the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. He saw inside the Ark of the Covenant, the commandments. He saw inside the commandments, the fourth commandment. Joseph Bates was the first person who connected the Sabbath with the sanctuary. What do I mean by this? Joseph Bates was the first person who understood the Sabbath and its importance in the context of the sanctuary. Or let me rephrase that another way. He understood the Sabbath in the context of its end time significance. What makes your belief on the Sabbath different from a Seventh-day Baptist? The Seventh-day Baptist just sees it as a day of rest, and it's part of the commandments. We also believe it's part of the commandments, but we also believe it's part of an end-time test God will give his people. We see the origin of the Sabbath in creation, but we see the importance of the Sabbath magnified in the end times. The uniqueness of Adventism, I would argue to you, 
is not the Sabbath and it's not the sanctuary, but it's the Sabbath understood in the context of the sanctuary. Meaning the Sabbath in its significance, in its prophetic significance. That's the uniqueness of Adventism. I'm moving ahead a few points. What's the uniqueness? You see, correct theology drives our mission. It was around 1848 that you had the gathering time where all these Sabbath conferences took place across the, the New England states. And God was gathering his believers, as I mentioned on Sunday night, back together again. And the doctrine that gathered them together again was the Sabbath. William Miller's farm is called the birthplace of Adventism. It's Edson, no, Hiram Edson's barn. See, as I mentioned in the Q&A, Reformation, distinguished churches. Adventism, Joseph, sorry, William Miller's farm and Hiram Edson's barn. There's your heritage, a farm and a barn. And it was in Hiram Edson's barn where the Sabbath keepers of Western New, Eastern New York came in contact with the sanctuary believers of Western New York and the Sabbath and the sanctuary come together. What's our uniqueness? These two doctrines. The Sabbath, a rest and the test, and Christ, our priest in the heavenly high sanctuary. The last thing I want to share with you before we finish is understanding that question I just mentioned earlier. Why is it that Ellen White studied Joseph Bates' tract to understand what the Sabbath is, and why didn't God just give her a vision? Surely she should have had VIP treatment from the throne of God. Let me share with you about the Sabbath. Maybe you know this. Maybe you don't. In 1848, the Adventists were wondering the question, when shall we keep the Sabbath? When does it start? So, they weren't quite sure when it started. They weren't sure. The debate was, do we start at 6 p.m.? And go to 6 p.m. Or do we start 6 a.m., 6 a.m.? That was the debate amongst the Adventist believers in about 1848 and 1849. Get this. God gave Ellen White a vision to answer the question. To help answer. And God said to Ellen White, from even to even shall you celebrate your Sabbaths. So she shared that with the believers. And they said, oh. Well, there's the answer. 6 p.m. You know, it's possible that God can give us an answer and we misunderstand his answer. Is that possible? Hmm. They said that means 6 p.m. So from 1847 to 1855, the Adventist believers kept the Sabbath from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. During this time period, I don't have time to go through all the different facts of the history. There was different letters written by certain people and, certain, and et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. But Jay and Andrews and James White weren't happy. And James White in particular wasn't quite happy. He said, this, this issue, can, I can see it becoming a bigger issue again. We've really got to get this rattled down. And so James White wrote to someone and said, can you study this out? But he never heard back from him. So then he was in Maine, and Jay and Andrews, and Jay and Andrews, at this point, in 1855, let's work it out. In 1846, he's 15. 
So how old is he now? He's about 24. So James White asks Jay and Andrews, who's 24 or 25, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, to study out this deep theological question and present a paper to the general conference session. Can you imagine the general conference session asking a 25-year-old to write a paper that the world church makes a decision on? They did it back then. Well, it wasn't really the world church back then, but anyway, interesting fact. So he presents a paper. He writes it. He wasn't even there to present it. He just sent it, and someone else read it. That's how good it was. (laughs) So he made six points. He said the day begins at night, according to the Bible. He said the day cannot begin at sunrise. He said the evening meant sunrise. Dividing the day into hours was a heathen custom. He said 12 hours of daylight changes throughout the year. And and he was arguing for the point that we have to keep the Sabbath from sunset to sunset. And these were his arguments. And his sixth argument, which I think is kind of the icing on top of the cake, said that there was no watches or timepieces before 1658. So how could we have kept the Sabbath up until 1658? We would never have known when 6 p.m. is. Therefore, his conclusion was, the Sabbath begins at sunset. Now get this, and this may kind of get inside some of your heads. They took a vote, and everyone voted to keep the Sabbath from sunset to sunset, except two people, Joseph Bates and Ellen White. It passed by a majority, but those are some significant people who said no. Did that get in your head? Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. It got in my head when I read it for the first time. It's like, whoa. Huh? What happened there? Well, this is the reason why Joseph Bates voted no, and this is the reason why Ellen White voted no. They both believed that when God told them nine years ago, from even to even shall you celebrate your Sabbaths, and they concluded that meant 6 p.m., they believed that was God speaking to them 6 p.m. They said, well, it's 6 p.m. God already told us in 1847. But everyone else said no. This paper was pretty clear. Three days after this, God gave Ellen White another vision. We call it a correcting vision, where he told her that the vote that was taken at the general conference was the correct vote. And the brethren were right. The question is, why did God wait? Why did God not correct the believers in 1847? Why did God wait till 1855? Do you get the point? Because all the Adventists were keeping the Sabbath, as we would understand today, wrong for eight years. Why? Why didn't God correct them in 1847? And this point you find repeated over and over again in the formation of our church. And I'm using the Sabbath tonight as an example to show you how doctrine was formed. Maybe one night we'll use the Holy Spirit. That one's interesting too. Here's the point. When we keep the Sabbath, it's far too important an issue to be settled by a vision. What do I mean? This issue must be done by Bible study. 
Why is it that God didn't give Ellen White a vision and say, keep the Sabbath? Instead, she had to read a tract and keep the Sabbath herself. Why? Because our fundamental beliefs must be verified by the Bible and discovered through the Bible. And when you look at the history of Adventism, it's a history of Bible study. The prophetic gift would enrich or confirm, but never form a fundamental belief. Yes, we've got some gems from Ellen White, amen? Health message and other things. Enlightening on this practice or lifestyle or teaching. But the foundational beliefs always came through Bible study. Here's the point. God is more concerned that we believe the right thing for the right reason, though we may be wrong for a time. This is good parenting, amen? Rather than we believe the right thing for the wrong reason. He was content to let the Advent believers be wrong for nine years. Because he wanted them to come to the conclusion by the right process. You remember when you were taking math in school? All those many years ago, or right now if you're in school? Let's just say you've got a, a complicated, um, what do you call it? Multiplication. And let's say you get the answer right because you looked across and you saw your friend with the answer, and you answered it, and you just copied it. But in order to get, you'll know in your maths, exam or class in your test, the teacher will not mark you correct just on your final answer. They want you to have the process of how you got there as well. The process is more important than the answer. You can get the right answer, but if the process is not correct, you get marked wrong. God, in how we came about as Adventists, was very concerned that we would get the process right. Because if the process is right, the conclusion will naturally come. We came to an understanding of our doctrines through Bible study, amen? The Sabbath is one example, a key example. But there are many, many other ones. Never doubt for one second that as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, our faith is not a Bible-based faith. There may be people in church, I'm talking to some of those who are younger. There may be some in church who are older than you that call themselves learned, but all the time they quote from Ellen White. And I'm not saying we shouldn't quote from Ellen White because I believe we have a great gift that we should use as much as possible. But when you're defending your fundamental beliefs, know what the Bible says. Be able to give a Bible study on the Sabbath or the sanctuary or the state of the dead. Know what you believe from God's Word. Because when our pioneers put together the fabric of our church, they did it through Bible study. Don't doubt for one second that we have an identity. That we, rather, don't doubt that we do not have an identity in the Bible. We do. It's rooted and grounded in Scripture. Where even the prophet. And the followers 
studied God's word to come to the understanding of the teachings that you and I hold as sacred today. May God bless us and guide us in our journey as we continue the heritage that these men and women left before us. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.